Welcome to Tilth Talk Radio. Today we're going to be talking about sulfur as we continue our breakdown of the micronutrients and secondary nutrients. In our spotlight, we're going to look at a new LED light that may help reduce the weed population. Ag History Minute, we're going to talk about the Clean Air Act of 1970. And in our Cool Beans, that's corny, we'll wrap things up with some current events. So with me today are Bill Schomburg. Hey, guys. Max Garvey. What's up, everybody? Todd Schomburg. Hey to all the Tilthies out there. And I'm Matt Brueger, all with Tilth Agronomy. So here we are, Super Bowl weekend. The big game. Are we allowed to say Super Bowl? Oh, yeah, sorry. Probably not. The big the game. Big game. Uh, the big on, game. On the radio, I hear conflicting. Like, sometimes they'll say Super Bowl, and then sometimes they won't. Is it like in, during like, adver- a commercial? Yeah, and advertising, like you have to say the big game. Yeah, there's yeah something goofy about it. So it's technically the worst Super Bowl ever, because it's the two lowest seeds ever to play each other in a... They're both the four seed playing each other. Mm. That's the the lowest matchup there's ever been in a Super Bowl, is what I saw. So uh, I think it'll be a good game, though. No, I think it'll be a good game, well, unlike the Pro Bowl. Seeds, so right, right. It's right. even. Joe Shiesty. I'm big Joe Burrow guy, so I'm excited. Joe, the big Joe Heba. If, if they win, does his stock just exponentially go I mean, up? It he, already has, and I like mean, they win, he seals the deal. Like he the is thing is, I, even if they don't win, like they're gonna be good for was a the long side, time. Side by side, it took Joe Burrow two seasons to get to the Super Bowl. It only and <laughs> as a number one pick, and it took Matt, Matt. Stafford thirteen seasons <laughs> as a number one pick to make the Super Bowl. So that is another interesting aspect of the, the Super yeah, Bowl, too. but the, the Bengals were bungling forever. Oh, yeah. Know, they, but, but the Lions, too, were so bad. That just shows how bad the Lions organization is. Yeah. That even right, because they had Calvin Johnson. They had Matt Stafford. Like, they had Calvin Johnson and Matt Stafford are the same as Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, right? I mean, oh, uh, if Meg- not better. Megatron's better, yeah. Right, and they, they were able to figure it out in, in Cincinnati, but not in... And they really are doing it kind of on their own. If you look, like, the offensive line in Cincinnati is still so bad. Well, they had nine sacks. They're they so took nine bad. sacks. And he just kept getting up. Yeah. The last time, I just saw this last night, the last time a quarterback won a playoff game after taking that many sacks was 1966. Oh. The AFL championship. Before, before the forward <laughs> before passes. The, right, it was yeah. before. Before the Super Bowl era. So do you guys have any uh, Super Bowl traditions or anything you do for the game? Watch it. No, just watch it. Just watch the commercials. Watch the com- yeah, yeah, watch it mostly. Watch the Are you like the rest, the half of the world that wanted it on Saturday? Because it gets so uh, late on it Sunday. It doesn't bother me, you know, because no. I'm not that invested in it unless... I feel like a Saturday would be better, though. Like, you could do more with it and stuff. It would be... I just call in on Monday. It's not a big deal. No, I... <laughs> You're gonna call in anyway next week, so <laughs> yeah. No, it'd be. I mean, it'd be nice if it was on a Saturday, but I don't know. Football's played on Sunday, I guess. What time is the official start? Five thirty. Thirty. Yeah, but it won't be probably what almost six before. So they, they play. Yeah, it, it'll be a five At hour, at least six. Yeah, it's a five six over ordeal because you've got the halftime show, which right. is twice as long. Twice as long. There's so so many more. Well, it seems like so many more commercial breaks and everything else. Because of you know the amount of money these companies are paying to advertise during the Super Bowl, 
So it's it's just a longer game in general, probably twice as long as a normal football game. Yeah. It, it You know, if you can survive a Sunday night game at Lambeau, going to it live, you, I think you'll be able to go to this, watch the Super Bowl on Sunday night too. You'll be all right. But uh, NFL Honors was last night, which is a change-up. Usually that's not till the night before the Super Bowl. And we had some some pretty good Packer showings at the Leroy Butler going to the Hall of Fame. And he, Rodgers got his fourth MVP. So. It was big. That's cool for, for Leroy, like the... They always talk about the decade team, all decade teams, and like of all the decade teams they've had, he's the only guy not in. Like, that's pretty cool. They said safeties are really underappreciated. And think of what he did. I mean, just he He invented invented the the, Lambo leap. He's the inventor of it. Well, he was the first one to twenty picks and twenty sacks. The first guy ever to do that. Yeah, he the blitz that he did. That's pretty. You know, you didn't blitz like that before his no. before him. We get, we got Kramer in and Butler in. I mean, we're as Packer fans, we're our our work is done. Like the old, like yeah, like until the, the old, new crap comes. Like, well, yeah. Woodson's already there, and but he's in, he'll get in no problem. I mean, we I'm saying the guys that we were dying to get in, that yeah, we couldn't get in. They're they're both in now. So listening to coming in this morning and they were talking about the 96 Packers you got now you got Leroy and you got Favre and and Reggie, Reggie yeah. and yeah. like that's probably it right from that team and then the the question was who from 2010 would be in and you're gonna get Rodgers and Woodson's already there and they could not come up with another Clay Matthews doesn't like make Clay it. Clay Matthews not gonna get there nobody on the line you know who could have been yeah Driver was there too late and then Nick Collins at the end Nick of Collins season. yeah Nick Collins if he wouldn't have had a broken neck Jordy but he's not he's, he's not, not he's not gonna go in the Hall no. of Fame and and Donald Donald Driver right he I was mean, too late for the '96 team and yeah or too early sorry for the '96 team and almost and too late was, for the 2010 yeah end of his career there. yeah he's right in the middle. Yep, and Mason probably now with the way his career is kind of tailing off. I mean, he, kickers yeah. are hard. Do they anyway. put kickers in? Yeah, I think a couple. Yeah. Vinatieri, I mean, Vinatieri will be in, and yeah. the guy who kicked Tucker Atlanta. now will Mortensen. You know, Justin Tucker at some point will probably get in if he keeps going. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I'm only two Hall of Famers on that team, but they were good. I mean, I felt like. I, you guys maybe not have watched it, but I felt like Rogers' MVP speech was like a goodbye speech. I felt like it was almost like, thank you for everything, I'm out. It's hard because you do thank people when you receive right. an award, but it just felt like a like combined with a goodbye uh, speech a little bit. It felt weird. like every other Rogers speech or You're talk, right. That's non-committal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even on the radio this morning, when they asked him, he's like, yeah, "I'm going to decide here soon, and he, I'll I'll give him some time." Yeah, he just thoroughly enjoys watching people in the media squirm. <laughs> so there looks like there's four kickers. kickers in the Hall of Fame. Morton Anderson, which makes sense, he was pretty big with the Saints. Jan Stenrud, he was he a was Packer. Packer and Chief. Mm-hmm. Come on, Matt, he was Packer. I know, but I. <laughs> Stenrude, Stenrude, George Blanda, twenty six seasons that guy played. Blanda was also a QB. Yep. So there's that. And Lou Groza, who also played tackle. He played twenty one years in the league. So, yeah, but think of back in the day, like the kickers played another position. Yeah. Yep. 
All right. You guys ready to talk some sulfur? Oh, you yeah. Bet. All right. So this week, as we continue our journey into the lesser nutrients that we talk about normally, we've got sulfur. So sulfur is a component of numerous protein enzymes in the plant that regulate photosynthesis and nitrogen fixation. So those are two pretty important processes in the plant. Sulfur deficiency can lead to a crude protein deficiency when you're talking about the feed potential of your, your crop, and it reduces milk production and overall feed efficiency on dairy farms. So sulfur is a main component of several amino acids, one of which uh, animals need, so it's, I'm going to try to pronounce it, methionine in their diet so that they can generate, uh, <clears throat> help generate the milk. And furthermore, sulfur deficiency will result in greater import of feeds onto the farm, which is, gets pretty costly for the farm. So pretty important part of that whole crop process, not only in the, the plant growing itself, but also the feed potential of that plant once it leaves the field. You always think of, and we're agronomists here, so we don't talk feed that much, but we think of nitrogen is that correlating to protein right. 100%. Yep. Like even 6.25. Yeah, they kept <laughs> saying that number is yeah. take that times 6.25 yep. and you get your crude protein. So, the, yeah, and we, I don't know, I would almost call like, would you call sulfur like nitrogen's little brother or maybe like a yeah, I mean, cousin? Similar, I don't know, what yeah. are we I had an uh, old timer at the Foxville Tech always talk about like adding sulfur you know, you get your nitrogen benefit, right? We know what that is. But then if you had sulfur, it's almost like, like you said, Todd, like that extra kick that sulfur really comes in at the, for him, it was very important, I guess is what I'm getting at is. No, they're very similar. They, you know, sulfur can cycle through the system kind of like nitrogen cycles out and. They, they you cycle the it. same where you have, yep. you know, nitrite, there's sulfite, there's yep, nitrate, sulfate. 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 Yep. So yep. they've got very similar, um, they're very similar in that way, and I always try to figure out how, in, again, sulfur is in the secondary nutrients part. It's not in the micro, technically, part. So it's kind of in that second tier, not the third tier. Yep. And where it fits with nitrogen, I always try to... They're, they're both very important, and obviously you need nitrogen more. I don't, maybe little brother is the wrong way to say it, because little brother is still important. Well, it's funny, Todd, you were talking about feeding or we were just talking about feeding is you guys are kind of all sometimes are involved with your farms in these group meetings where they bring the nutritionist and vet and stuff and I had a farm that we've been doing that and the nutritionist kind of equated like sulfur to calories like we need so many calories and I've never heard a nutritionist talk about calories like that you know we talk about it with our own food like oh how many calories does this food have or whatever and but he was equating we don't have enough calories in our diet how is our sulfur program in the fields and once we addressed pushing that sulfur program and we pushed it hard like i doubled the ammonia's uh, or the calcium sulfate in the alfalfa fertilizer every time we went across the field with the corn you know, amthio or some type of sulfur was in the corn program. And we went from like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 400 calories per whatever gram or pound, whatever he was unit, a measure to like 700. And his goal was like above 700. And that was what 
it was interesting to me that we were equating sulfur in the field to calories in the pile, which would create more milk. And they were struggling with milk production, and it increased milk production. So it's kind of full circle there with adding sulfur to the crop right it, to it, get calories in the feed to make more milk it's the next step it's you know we need we know we need nitrogen but we need the sulfur too it's right. not you can do one without the other and you're still going to get a decent plant but then like you're saying bill it's like eating i'm trying to think of a good example of empty calories basically like you're you're eating potato chips potato instead chips of an apple. Or, yeah. yeah i mean what that uh Laffy Taffy that my son likes to have before his basketball game. Yeah, it's your your Sprite Zero or your Coke Zero or your Pepsi Zero, whatever the you know. Oh yeah, no calories. Uh, see, it's not adding anything. Well, you want to. Sometimes you need those calories. That's how we make energy and how cows and other animals make energy too. So as far as mobility goes, like we mentioned, it is mobile in the soil, uh, similar to how nitrogen is. Mobility in the plant, I found interesting because it was. Um, some universities say it is, some say it isn't, so we'll, we'll call it somewhat mobile, go somewhere in the middle. You're going to um, stand on the fence. <laughs> I would say in general it's mobile. Like I thought it was interesting that some would say it's immobile. Yeah. Especially Michigan the, State had, it uh, is not mobile and Cornell says I mean, it was. One so. thing you always look at for that yeah. is if the top new growth shows deficiency, obviously it's not moving to that new growth and all that. Yeah. Because if you think of sulfur, usually you just think of like a lazy looking yellow plant. It's not that. Right. So, so maybe it is somewhere in the middle like that. That makes some yeah. sense. Yeah. So we'll call it somewhat mobile for today and until we find out otherwise. Um, like Todd said, it's, it is considered a macro, more than a micro because it's a secondary nutrient. It's not necessarily that, that true micronutrient, though we do kind of lump it in with micronutrients. It seems a lot. Um, Soil test interpretation when you're looking at your soils, uh, UW's range is somewhere between, um, you know, if you're less than 30 parts per million, you're low, optimums between 30 and 40, and high is, is over 40. They don't have like a very low or excessively high. I think that comes as part of the cycling thing too. You know, having it there, it's not going to sit around and, and gather in the soil like some of the more less mobile nutrients. So... What's tricky about that is they do have a sulfur available availability index. index. Yep. So I think really what they're trying to do there is tell you, like we said, it cycles. So it's trying to tell you how much sulfur, how much sulfate sulfur is there. And so it's a tricky index that way too, where it's, it's not, it's not like our other nutrients that way. Right. So there is sulfur in that's going to get released from organic matter. Um, not as much as we used to, but there is some sulfur in precipitation. You have your soil applied or your soil existing sulfur and then, you know, manure and, and what you're applying. So that index kind of helps you tie into how much you should put out there in a giving growing season, how much you want available. Yeah, the the sulfur availability index equals soil test result times four plus subsoil plus precipitation percent organic matter and then there's this like two pounds of per, like a like a calibration type factor sure yeah and then they put it into an equation to tell you where you're at so it is an interesting equation that you do have to run in it and i would say in general i don't know about you guys but i don't you test for sulfur in the soil very often i typically use my tissue test to yep. tell yeah. me. Yep. so um we there's times where it's helpful and if you're questioning something but more often, tissue sampling is a better 
proxy of sulfur in your soil. Um, so like we kind of mentioned before, deficiency, sulfur deficiency looks similar to nitrogen when you see it. It's so kind of a yellowing and a intervenal chlorosis. But um, sulfur being not as mobile in the plant, younger leaves will show deficiency first versus the older leaves. Um, in the case of nitrogen deficiency, sulfur deficient plants will grow slower and have delayed maturity. So there is some differences there, even though they may look kind of similar. Plants tend to develop thin stems and petioles, become spindly. Sulfur can occur early when soils are cold. So that getting back to that availability, you know, even if it's there, it's got to have the right um, forms, right temperatures kind of to, to get uh, uptake in the plant. And so it's something that you don't want the plant to necessarily go through that deficiency if you can avoid it. So you want to make sure you're, you're getting it out there. And like we said before, sulfur cycle, similar to nitrogen, um, most of the sulfur in the soil is soil in soil organic matter and less available. So organic sulfur will slowly go through a process of mineralization, kind of like we see with nitrogen, when it's in the in the soil to become available to the plant in sulfate form. Sulfur enters the soil by deposition through rainwater, plant and animal residues. Um, sulfur can leave the soil as a result of plant uptake, leaching, and volatilization that occurs with increased soil disturbance. So overall, sulfur moves from one form to another in the cycle, very similar to nitrogen, and can leach in you know, those lighter soils, just like nitrogen can, a little bit easier. And I was just going to bring that up, Matt, like, at least for me, and I would imagine you guys would agree, and please tell me if you don't, but you kind of manage in the field sulfur pretty much the same as nitrogen, right? I mean, you split applications, you do a little bit kind of all the time so that you don't lose it, like throwing it all down at, at planting or... I think you end up using this tandem approach of if you got urea, you throw some ammonium sulfate right. with it to get the ammonium form of N and to get sulfur and then your partner with the liquid form you throw in with your 32% or 28 you throw in ammonium thiosulfate which is a liquid so it's like like you say Bill you're kind of always running those as a as a partner program that I, and there's ratios that people use sometimes for that too like and if it, I'm and it makes doing it, so much N I do this much sulfur right. with it but it makes it good because obviously the amount of sulfur you need isn't as much as nitrogen. So just to go out and make a sulfur application is kind of difficult because you just don't need as much pounds. So to kind of piggyback it with something like potash application in, in alfalfa or you're, like you said, Todd, your urea or maybe you're doing a bunch up front on corn and you're doing a little bit of ammonia sulfate, you know, maybe you're in the ESN camp and some urea. You got well, those three out there. Even if you're doing liquid, there's ammonium thiosulfate you can add into citrus applications or starters. So there's, yep. yeah, there's a lot of options to add sulfur into and the what mix. is nice is you can add little bits at a time. Three gallons of ammonium thiosulfate goes a long way and then 50 pounds of AMS to 100. You, you could kind of work it in. And I, I would say... Think of how much we used to get for free out of our acid rain. And you stole what I was going to say. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> but, I mean, did you grow up, Max, in the, like, Matt and I grew up in, like, acid rain was going to, like, kill us all, and, like, that's all we learned. It was about. eroding buildings yeah, and yeah, statues. Like, and, I mean, we joked about it when I was a kid, but I don't think I ever really thought it was a real thing. You you were probably in the camp where we were starting to, you know, clean it out but of I know the out f- of cold. The or, first, you know, like, like, probably the first forage council meeting I ever went to, like, as a 
industry professional. Well, they talked about decreasing sulfur availability in the environment due to environmental regulations like the the scrubbers on the coal uh yep the coal coal plants coal plants and some of that stuff so how we're how we're seeing sulfur levels decline and over like in general tissue tests we're having lower sulfur numbers so well and you know we 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 always jokingly call it free sulfur but it's still you know we pay for it because we pay our electric bills and you know, even when it was freely going into the atmosphere, it wasn't free sulfur. It was just sulfur that was put up because of right. power it, plants it wasn't, and other stuff. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like always we, there occurring. We call it before the Industrial ago. Revolution, yeah. it would have been there right. either. So, Right. I'm just saying, yeah. like, that's what's changed and, in the last 15 years of, like, that Bill and I and Matt have adjust to as agronomists of, like, you used to not worry about putting out 25 units of sulfur. You yep. just, you got, like, a free 15 and you'd put a little out. And now you gotta gotta watch that. Environmental sulfur is on the decline. That's a good way to put it. The other thing that the kind of a trick we used to use at the co-op, and I'm sure the guys use it there, is um, when we would throw some some uh, 28 out with the spray and through the sprayer, like at planting. Maybe you'd add some herbicide to that too. You gotta watch it because compatibility agent. You know, compatibility might not be great, but actually ammonia thiosulfate. It works well in maximizing nitrogen. It's actually kind of boosts your UAN efficiency. So if a guy was just doing like Lumax with 28 on the sprayer, we would add a little bit of of ATS to help make that nitrogen work a little bit better. So that was always kind of nice because it helps reduce from leaching and denitrification. Well, and we were talking yesterday at the Outer Gaming County Forage Council. They were they talked about last year and some of the virtual stuff, bringing in Tom Kilser from New York. Was he with Cornell? Do you guys remember? He was Cornell. I think he's Cornell, yeah. And so the, you know, we talked earlier about the feed aspect, and that's kind of helped push, you know, as agronomists, we've known from the plant side that we can see responses from sulfur, and it it gives us benefits. But um, on the feed side, just as much, as we mentioned before, they've been pushing more for that sulfur. So... In general, it's all all aspects of of agriculture are recognizing the importance of sulfur, and you know, even though it's not the big three, it still is a pretty important aspect to the your plant's growth. And if you're feeding your plant your plant matter to animals, uh, part of their their diet as well. So, so there you go. There's sulfur for you. Similar in behavior to nitrogen but not necessarily um, exactly the same gives you a good companion to that nitrogen to help build a healthy plant and a edible more edible plant too so now we know max was never scared of acid rain like the other three yep, of us never were. learned yep never learned the dangers so now we'll move into our spotlight for today So a new agriculture invention harnesses LED light inside the combine to kill weed seed. So a blue LED light is a non-chemical weapon capable of stunting the growth of herbicide-resistant weed seeds. Um, and we, you know, we've talked about before the idea of crushing seeds. That was a practice for water hemp. That we'd put these crushers on the combine and use that to kind of out the back end 
destroy those seed, but now what if you could just hang a light and do something very similar? So light-emitting diodes, or LEDs, are capable killers able to unleash a sanitizing effect against bacteria, fungus, and mold. In 2018, U.S. Air Force sought technology to make tumbleweeds less of a thorn in the flesh and awarded a small business investment research grant to southwestern Ohio-based company Global Neighbor to create a means of making tumbleweed seeds non-viable without disturbing desert crust and soil. So they did so with blue LED technology. I didn't, I didn't realize tumbleweeds were that much of an inconvenience. Apparently. And it was a good thing for us because now we may have a way of killing noxious weed seeds. Without Go to Oklahoma once and you'll... <laughs> Are they really a problem? Like, yeah. What do they do? They just... Oh, I mean, I think they, they tumble. They blow everywhere. everywhere. Yeah, I know they so just they blow. Like, they blow into the cities and blow in, like... Just get know, caught up in everything. Or, how big, yeah. I mean, how big is an actual tumbleweed? I don't know. A couple basketball sizes. Oh. Yeah. So we can kill coronavirus with ultraviolet light, right? Yep. Now we can... Kill weed seeds with blue LEDs. So every combine is going to have some water hemp killing or palmer amaranth killing capabilities or stunting. There's potential there, yep. So they've got a little diagram here. So basically where the hopper tracks chaff flow. Todd's pulling pictures pulling up, up of tumbleweeds. tumbleweeds. It looks like a snowdrift in front of this guy's house. Tumbling tumbleweeds. Like as big as his garage. Yeah, that's a lot of tumbleweeds. It's like up to the roof. Can't even see the guy's house. I didn't know they had thorns. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're prickly. That's part of the reason I think they're menace, too, is they get caught on stuff with those thorns, and then that helps build them up. It's on his roof. Think of, like, having a bunch of uh, burrs, you know, stuck Mm. in how, as they group up, they get caught together. Yep. Like, that's kind of what these do, too, about a much larger scale. I've never been to the Southwest, so I don't know these things. Maybe you need to go. I've been to the Southwest, like I've been to Madison, Wisconsin. That's like Southwest of here. <laughs> that's not even Southwest. That's South Central. It's Southwest maybe you, of Maybe here. you and Sierra need to make a plan at some point yep. to go traveling to Amarillo, Texas. Anything to the South, I'm good. This I'll poor, pass. This poor rich homeowner had to hire two men with thick gloves and pitchforks to do the job. Just clear it oh, out. my gosh. <laughs> In his million-dollar house. <laughs> Poor guy. But yes, if you're frustrated with tumbleweeds or water hemp, this new technology may be the way of helping reduce the annoyance that is herbicide-resistant weeds and tumbleweeds. I think water hemp's a little more a little annoyance. More, a little bit more. Yeah. Like, the level of uh, monetary... It's a little more than annoyance than a tumbleweed would be. Well, I don't know. That guy had to pay two guys well, to clear out his driveway. The funny thing is, to the general public, tumbleweeds are way more of an annoyance. Right. Yeah. But to people who actually have to deal with it, water hemp is, yeah. I think, maybe not, but I would think people would take tumbleweeds over Palmer Amaranth and water hemp. Just a guess. The farmers, I should say. Oh, look at that. It stopped a smart car in its tracks. <laughs> Probably... R- totaled out that smart car. I don't know. All right. So, yeah, basically, yeah, it looks like a series of lights that as the chaff gets blown out the back would get exposed to the LED light and would hopefully kill majority, if not all the seeds. So 
pretty cool. Interesting to keep an eye on. We'll see if that technology takes off and gets added to combines in the next few years. Now we'll move into our Ag History Minute. Gotta love the banjo. So since we were talking about sulfur and acid rain, figured this was a good tie-in. Uh, today we're going to talk about the Clean Air Act of 1970, which was would have been passed in 1970 under then-President Nixon. So the Clean Air Act, or the CAA, is the comprehensive federal law that regulates air emissions from stationary and mobile sources. Among other things, this law authorizes EPA to establish national ambient air quality standards to protect public health and public welfare to regulate emissions of hazardous air pollutants. Initially enacted in 1963 under President Johnson and amended many times since, it is one of the United States' first and most influential modern environmental laws. Amended several times, the latest of which was 1990 under George H.W. Bush. So work in the 80s in New York showed no response to L in alfalfa to wheat uh, sorry, in alfalfa, wheat, or corn to sulfur addition, indicating that sufficient amounts were available through organic matter, manure, use of fertilizers uh, that contain both phosphorus and sulfur, superphosphates, and atmospheric deposition. Since the Clear Act, Clean Air Act was passed in 1970, emissions of sulfur dioxide have decreased dramatically, resulting in reduced sulfur deposition in many parts of the state. In addition, the fertilizer market shifted more towards concentrated fertilizers, such as monomonium and diammonium phosphates, or as we know them, MAP and DAP. Also, some sulfur-containing pesticides that were once readily used, uh, for example, fungicidal copper sulfite, or <coughs> sulfate, sorry, have been replaced by organic materials that do not contain sulfur. So all around, not even just the atmospheric, but we're using less uh, we were using less fertilizers and other uh, herbicides and other pesticide products that had less sulfur in them. So the reduced use of sulfur-containing fertilizer and pesticides, decreased deposition, and the increased yields through improved management and crop varieties have brought us to where we are now of seeing response from sulfur in our crops. So kind of interesting how that cycled back around. And now here we are talking about the importance of sulfur in 2022. So, Todd, what do you got for us? Thanks, Matt. Please subscribe to the podcast. If you're a listener out there, we appreciate you listening. Just tell a farmer friend about the podcast, and he's going to say, "What? how do I get a podcast? What do I do? You pull out his smartphone, and you go on an iPhone. You go to Apple Podcasts, and you Search Tilt Talk Radio, and on Android, we like three apps. We like Podcast Attic, Podbean, or Player FM, and you can download Tilt Talk Radio right on there and listen that. And if you're on your computer or even on a smartphone, there's you can go to your smartphone browser, go to tiltegg.com slash podcast. And there's also another way we're newly on Amazon Music, so now available there that if you go to Amazon Music and you follow us, then on your smart speaker, like your Alexa, you can say, Alexa, play my followed podcast, and it'll play the latest episode of Tilt Talk Radio right there. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Tilt Talk Radio. All right. Thanks, Dad.
Now we'll wrap things up with some current events with our Cool Beans That's Corny. So, Cool Beans? Cool Beans. Cool Beans. Cool Beans. Cool Beans. All right. Our Cool Beans this week. The Wisconsin legislature released ag funding, so the Wisconsin Joint Finance Committee has officially released budget funds to boost agricultural research and increase international farm exports. So the UW will receive $2 million over the next two years to fund 11 new UW extension positions. Three of the new positions are research-based and will operate from Madison. Eight new extension agents will be based at the county levels to work directly with farmers. Whoa. So a big change from the way extension had been going there. And state leaders also gave the green light to $558,000 that will help the state's ag department support a new uh, new agricultural export initiative this year. So ag officials can seek the same amount of funding next year. The overall goal is to increase Wisconsin dairy, meat, and other ag exports by 25% over the next five years. We talked about that ag export part of this bill already, I believe. It was when it was first passed, but now yeah. this is it's officially, officially been put out that the the money is available. Now we got the money. Right. It was it was talk before. Now it's money. It's money in the bank. And that's good for extension that we're here in, you know, other states, Minnesota, Illinois, they basically kind of scrapped their whole extension program and Wisconsin's still been able to, you know, keep a hold of it and kind of still have a pretty strong presence, I would say, even though it's gotten worse over the years, but this maybe will help revitalize that. Yeah, they were going to more of a regional approach because of, you know, reducing the number of people, so now maybe they can either narrow up those regions a little bit so they're a little little closer supported or um, even go back to a little bit more county-based in some areas, so... Yeah, pretty, pretty good thing for agricultural endeavors in Wisconsin in general. All right, our that's corny this week. As we prepare for the 2022 season, when it comes to tar spot, we should get ready for a lion and hope for a lamb. So there's no good way to predict exactly what we're going to see. Uh, firestorm of high humidity, rainfall, and fog rolled together and helped Mother Nature deliver a tar spot gut punch to corn in many areas of Michigan last year. And, you know, we saw a late push here in Wisconsin on some of our acres. So, um, you know, it's possible to see that again in the future. Tar spot seems to keep increasing its area of effect in the Midwest. So right now, you know, just looking at the map here, they've got all of almost all of Iowa, the lower two-thirds of Wisconsin, the upper two-thirds or even three-quarters of Illinois, majority of Indiana, western Ohio, most of Michigan, and a little bit of our friends over in Canada there eh? experiencing uh, tar, tar spot. Tar eh? Yeah. <laughs> Got the tar spot up there, eh? Yeah. I love what do you what do you feel is going to do about that turf body? I love the quote in here. <laughs> we knew it could easily we knew it could hit crops and easily take out fifty bushels an acre, but to watch it physically kill a crop in like a three week time frame, may, may, that made me step back and I was like, oh my goodness, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, not, not yeah. great. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, that's tell, exactly what I was saying. Tell your folks I says hi. Tell your folks I says hi. 
you'd see the, the first week, the next week, and then it'd be a little worse, and then the third week, it's dead. All of a sudden, you had brown corn at the end of August, and you're like, oh, that must be some short-day stuff. And your combine kind of got black a little bit, too. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's not going away, so it's something we have to continue to plan for and deal with. So, yes, plan for the lion, but hope for the lamb this year. We say that about March, too, don't we? Yep, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Hasn't uh, always been that way. Sometimes we get in like a lamb and out like a lion, so. And it seems more that way lately than it, than the other way, but. There you go. That'll do it for this week. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us, Matt. So we talked about sulfur as a macronutrient that is a secondary nutrient. And the important part it plays in plant development as well as plant feed. Our spotlight was looking at the new blue LED that may soon find its way into your combine and help kill weed seed. Ag History Minute, we talked about the Clean Air Act of 1970. And our cool beans this week was the Wisconsin legislature releasing ag funding to help support research and extension as well as help look at boosting ag exports and our that's corny was tar spot the potential for it to be a lion next year but we all hope it's more of a lamb so thanks for listening and as always happy farming